Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 77. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier on in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at BJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Doing great, John. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations, and some of us heavily caffeinated. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Great, Nick. So uh, this is the second half of our interview with Josh Fidel. Actually, John, this is part two of the first Nerd Journey trilogy interview. Ooh. Yeah. So more goodness to come next week. But actually, this week, we get to hear from Josh about his stint at VMware as a vSAN specialist. And he actually talks about how his scope and sphere of accountability changes as he moved from one segment to another to work with the biggest customers in VMware's account sets. I just found it to be a very interesting transition for him and some of the challenges get highlighted very well. Yeah, and um, thankfully I finally uh, followed up on something that came up in the first uh, half of the, the of the discussion. I say first half, but part one. Um, Josh mentioned back in part one that he actually did some uh, job hunting back during the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, 2010. So we circled back and asked him about uh, that process and if he has any tips for people that would be appropriate if they are looking to change jobs or are job hunting right now when we find ourselves in ourselves in a time of economic uncertainty. So with that, uh, part two of three of our interview with Josh Fidel. But then the other thing I worry about is, you know, as you go up that educational chain, you become so specialized that you're only good for one specific thing, which is ultimately one of the reasons um, I, I left. Uh, I'll, I'll just say I left VMware. Is I love working for VMware. I love the people, uh, gr such smart people who work there. You know, uh, really smart people in the valley. I just, I'm impressed with all of them. Honestly, um, there were some of the character flaws which eh, got under my skin a little bit. But I have so many character flaws that who am I to judge? So. Um, but one of the reasons I left the vendor is Mr. Customer, you have a problem and I have this hammer right here and this hammer will solve all your problems. And, you know, maybe the customer needed a screwdriver. They didn't need a hammer. Maybe they needed a, you know, something else and working for a vendor. I couldn't really go outside of that vendor line of products and say, oh, well, what I do is I would actually look at these options 
And I would pick the best one based on what's your current knowledge base, what do you have comfort with, what are your requirements, what are your constraints, you know, and, and you can't really do that at a vendor, right? It's just, I mean, you, you can, but your sales guys, your sales people frown upon it. <laughs> they definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> but I've and definitely would, done it. <laughs> I, I, exactly. And, and that's because of who we are. We're the, we're the problem solvers. Um, but I, I realized, you know, after I'd done it for quite a few years and, and I did it, I, I think I did it pretty well. Um, you know, they did, uh, I, I started at VMware after leaving my implementation job, I came to VMware and I was really, really, I was psyched. I was so stoked to work there. Um, and I started as a regional SE and, um, very, very excited and just, and the product was cool. I mean, vSAN, it's still a cool product. It's still awesome. Um, like every other product, it has its issues. Um, not going to lie. But it was such a revolutionary idea to me coming from a pretty heavy storage background. You know, um, to, to me, it kind of revolutionized the way things were done. And that really excited me. And I, I did pretty well with it. Um, some of the biggest regional sales for VMware while I was there. And then the position came up in globals. And I was actually nervous about it. Um, I wasn't sure I was good enough. Um, Just to back up. Like we're talking about kind of like the way that solution engineering is segmented in a lot of different vendors, right? There's one group of people that looks after maybe small and medium sized businesses, another group of people that looks after enterprise like size businesses, and then another group of people that looks after what we're calling globals, which is probably the biggest of the big, which, you know, uh, span multiple different um, continents or just are of a, a large enough size. Right. So, um, you know, maybe like the, the global 2000 or, or, you know, some, some subset of that is what is considered globals. And, and if, you know, there's any number of reasons why, you know, the skill sets, you know, fundamentally you're understanding the product, but, you know, the, each of those different segments of business have their own concerns that only maybe mildly overlap with the other ones. So if you're a solution engineer for a small business, small, medium sized businesses, the types of problems that you're dealing with are different from, you know, maybe the largest bank in the world. Right. So that was, that was one really cool thing. I actually liked about the regional uh, SE because I was a specialist for them. I got to do uh, sled, which is state local education. I got to do healthcare. I got to do um, enterprise. I got to do SMB. Although I, I really took the the point of view um, as a vendor, any partner who was willing to work with me, who I could train up and just teach them my stuff. If you get a chance, here's how you qualify an opportunity. Here's where a good use case. Here's where it makes sense. Any partner I could train was boots on the ground for me. Um, and that's actually, I think, one of the reasons I did so well is I was so willing to share my knowledge 
And I was so willing to teach other people to do these things and to help them understand it and get good at it. Um, you know, money, if you share money, you, you run out of money. Knowledge, if you share knowledge, it just gets bigger, right? Um, wow, there's a platitude. Jeez, it's late. Yeah. Anyway. We've already, we've marked the time code. That's, that's going to be, yeah. yeah. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. But I wanted to ask, in that regional role, were you supporting just one salesperson as a specialist, or did you have where you shared amongst multiple salespeople? Because sometimes the model is different depending on what customers you support. So as a specialist, I supported, well, my territory was Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Northern Kentucky, West Virginia, Western Pennsylvania. I I think we supported like 40 some core sales teams for VMware. So yeah, I had 40 different sales teams wanting my time, right? Um, wow. But it was great because uh, I love driving and I could take calls while I was driving to a customer site or driving a state away. Um, never went too far, you know, maybe I think about six or seven hours was about the farthest I would drive. And that's, that's basically like West Virginia. Um, but it was, it was, uh, I loved it cause I could be in the car. I had the, the window down, the radio blasting, or if I had a phone call, I'd roll up the window and do my phone call. And then I'd roll the window back down, uh, got the Subaru Forester with the sunroof. So the top of my head was, you know, getting sunburnt and peeling, um, but it, it was great because I got to meet all these different people and, and really get into this regional and really understand different things about the region that I drove around. Um, and then globals came mm. and globals. And, and I got to say, uh, if, if she ever listens to this podcast, I hope she does. Uh, Noel Nguyen was probably one of the best bosses I've ever had. Uh, I, I said, look, you know, this, this position came open and uh, I really want to throw my hat in the ring, but man, we're talking like the biggest of the big, you know, uh, Detroit. If, if you know the, the big companies in Detroit, sure. let's say who they are. They make things out of metal and rubber. Um, that was in, in my purview. Um, I actually ended up working with some companies in New York, big uh, news companies and financial companies. And it was kind of funny. It, it was, I expected them to be the biggest of the big and the best of the best and the brightest of the brightest. And um, in some places they were. In some places, I was absolutely massively impressed, and and there were, even if it was a bureaucratic nightmare, poorly done mess, there were still bright spots, and, and those were generally the people, the engineers that I worked with. Um, but at some, the cultures of these companies were such; it was oppressive. These people were browbeaten. 
and they were afraid to make a mistake and they were so afraid of their jobs. And you know, uh, have you heard of the, the improvement kata, right? Hmm. No, you, tell us. No. Um, it, it's a multi-step process that was developed uh, by Toyota. But, but one of the things you have to do is you have to do experiments. And you have to be willing to fail because even if you do an experiment and you fail, you've learned something. And these large companies would not do that. There is no failure in our company. Failure is anathema. Well, do you do all your testing in production too? Really? You don't have a, a lab? I mean, that's why you have labs is so you can test things and try new things and not affect production. Um, but then you have these companies, lab, why would we spend extra money on a lab? We're fine. But then they'd crash production a couple of weeks later. And what was it? Oh, it was an update somebody applied. Well, why didn't you test that in the lab? What lab? We don't have a lab. You see the problem. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, and generally, you know, any engineer you ask, I would love to have a lab or yeah, I have a lab. I love my lab. Um, but you talk to managers, directors, executives, and it's to them, it's just another cost. Hmm. They, they, they don't see the benefit necessarily. And making, making that argument for a lab, that's something every engineer should be able to do. Every engineer should be, let's look at our past downtimes and what happens and how that could have been mitigated if I had a lab. This downtime cost us X amount of dollars. If I had a lab that I spent Y dollars on, it would have saved us a difference of whatever, right? Um, Z. Yeah. And don't be afraid to be an advocate for yourself. Uh, I mean, if, if someone's going to tell you no, okay, they're going to tell you no. And, and once you get to a certain point in your career, and I, I finally reached this point, um, you lose the fear. Hmm. You, you get good enough at something, you become well-known enough for something in your community, be it local, geographic, you know, statewide, national, whatever the case may be. You won't have to worry about a job. Got it. So you'll never have to worry about having a job because you've built your brand. A absolutely. And it it's interesting because now we're seeing prior to the virus, people were very geographically centered. If they lived in a city, they should get a job in that city. And there's only so many jobs. So it's, it's harder. It, you have more to worry about. If you lose your job, you not might not find another job in that geographic area. But now with what's going on, people are realizing, hold on, I can do this job anywhere provided I have the network connectivity I need. Um, I think that's going to be very liberating for a lot of people. There, I think there's a certain category of jobs that can be done from home. And if they can be done from home, then that means they can be done remotely. There's people whose jobs can't, you know, don't work that way. I think in the technology industry, we are very blessed that way. But I mean, I'm sure like, you know, 
do paralegals really need to be in the office? Do lawyers need to be, you know, in the office or, can, you know, can do accountants, stuff, do know? accountants need to be in an office or do they just need to have good bandwidth video conferencing and, and spreadsheets available? I, I don't know. Right. Um, people are finding a way to make it work now. You know, some people aren't, some people aren't. And, and maybe, you know, within industries, you know, the, the companies that haven't invested in that stuff, you know, might, not survive, you know, or will be gobbled up by the companies who have figured out about, you know, a way to make it work. It's an interesting choke point. I, actually, that brings me back to, um, I, I don't want to forget about this. You mentioned having to find a new job in a time of economic uncertainty when you lost your job back in 2007, 2008. Um, any, anything that you've learned, you know, from that experience that you think maybe applies to some people, uh, now I, I know building your brand is something that you've mentioned so that you have enough of a name in your industry so that people will want to employ you. Um, but back then you didn't necessarily have that brand, right? Um, or it was on a much no, smaller I did scale. not. It, it was, it was, it was on a much smaller scale. Um, and, and part of the reason I went inside during the economic downturn, the company I was working for had just closed. Uh, I had a very young child. I needed to provide stability. Um, even in economic downturns, people need health care. People need food. Um, I wasn't going back to waiting tables, which I, you know, did many, many, many moons ago. So go into health care. Um, and yeah, was lucky enough to find a job at a hospital during the downturn. And I would... I did that because I had to be conservative. I had to hedge my bets. Right now, with the number of people that are out of work, the number of technology people that are out of work, I would be surprised if we don't see some really cool new software companies congeal during this. Because there are so many smart, talented people who are not working currently. I, I would hope that they would get together, find each other. That's why on Twitter, I will, any any person asking for a job or any person who says, hey, I'm hiring for a job, I will retweet that in a second. Um, now, you know, caveat, I'm not vetting that person. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not vouching for them. Right. Um, but I want people to know, hey, we are job seekers. Hey, we are job finders. And, and maybe... You know, I know I know enough people in the industry now that maybe I can find something for somebody. Um, it, is it was, it, it is. It it was so beautiful uh, just the other day. Uh, a a guy who's a what is he? I think he's a vice president. He might be a vice president or a, a chief field technical officer or something. Relatively high place at a, at a vendor. He had a question about another software product that sat on top of his product. And he just put out a tweet. He said, hey, does anybody know how to do this thing? And I saw the tweet and I said, actually, I know somebody who works at that software company. Let me ping him. So I, I retweeted it and I said, maybe such and such a dude knows. And this dude chimed in. He's like, no, I don't actually know, but here's the people you should ask. And within like 15 minutes, the guy had an answer. Boom, like that. And these were, he's in New Zealand. 
The person I pinged, I think, is in Washington. The guy who answered was, uh, there was some guy in Germany who answered. There was, I mean, it's amazing. We have this connectivity. We have these connections. I mean, if there's one thing I can tell people, it's write some blogs and get on some. Twitter seems to be where most of the tech heads congregate. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's the format or something. Uh, it's, it's interesting. So I, I can see that. And I can also see to your former point, your previous point, um, that if you make those connections and then the only reason why you aren't starting your own company is the fear of the the lack of you know stability but then we're faced with this crunch and you don't have any stability and maybe you've lost your job you know and this is the opportunity to pursue that i, I think maybe there are people out there who you know now that they've been faced with their greatest fear and the reason why they didn't get out of their job originally was you know wow I need those benefits. I, okay, all that stuff is taken away. Like now, what's the reason why you haven't started this interesting company that you've had? Or well, there, there's had? there's still a danger right now because people still need money and nobody wants to starve. Yep. Um, so pe so people are going to try to find something safe. They're going to try to find something comfortable. That's why I like the uh, you know, I, and I don't endorse any political candidate. Really, um, they're all terrible. But anyway. Uh, but the idea of universal basic income to keep people safe in times of turmoil. Uh, I mean, look at the massive cluster that unemployment is in this country. Look at the massive cluster that the stimulus check uh, has been, right? Um, look at the fact that Mnuchin said, ah, 1200 bucks should get you through 10 weeks. Bro. <laughs> That's yeah, um, hundred and twenty dollars a week. Yeah, no. My <laughs> my my kids eat that in fruit and fruits and vegetables in like a week. Sure. Um, which is good because I want them to be healthy, and fruits and vegetables are important. But <laughs> but it's not rent, and it's not healthcare, and it's not it's not insurance. a mortgage. Yeah. It's not. It's sure not Cobra, mm -hmm. right? Which okay, maybe we do need some sort of you know universal healthcare. I don't know. Medicare for all something. Um, the fear coursing through people when they thought, oh, my God, if I get COVID and, you know, I'm going to go even more into debt than I'm already going to. I just lost my job. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to go more into debt. You know, people, what was that? I saw a story about some woman got like a $30,000 or $17,000 hospital bill. For her COVID treatment. Hmm. So you're just adding insult to injury. Um, whereas if there was a universal basic income that people could apply for and just be like, I need help. Um, we always say you should never be ashamed to ask for help. But yet when people ask for help, when they really, truly, desperately need it, they're, well. There's this instinct to shame them. Yeah, and, and Mitch McConnell today, um, I don't believe in a blue state bailout, right? Well, you're shaming someone who's asking for help. And then Cuomo dragging him, saying New York puts $116 billion more into the federal pot. Kentucky takes $145 billion every year. 
who's getting the bailout? You know what? It's it's not just politics. Well, it is politics, but think about it inside of an enterprise to get back to technology for a second. How many enterprises have we seen where the storage people don't like the virtualization people, don't like the network people, don't like the developers, don't like the architects, whatever. It's this tribalism that we cling to so madly. Whereas I've realized, you know, if I talk to everybody and I interact with everybody and we have open lines of honest, transparent communication and we're just like, look, I'm not trying to play games. I just want to do this thing. Do you think this thing is good? Can you help me? Um, yeah, sometimes it gets thrown back in your face. Absolutely. And you just make a note. Okay, this person does not want to play that way. All right. Um, but eventually, hopefully you find someone who does. Maybe there's a storage guy who'll actually sit down and talk to you and help you troubleshoot something in the virtualization layer. Um, I, w I wish people could overcome it because those companies whose culture has overcome that fragmented siloed operating model are doing really well. And it's interesting forward. Yeah. I think what you, it seems to me that what you're doing is pointing out that if our instinct is to be fractured and to be oppositional, then that's our reaction to everything. And when we're faced with a true crisis, be it um, political or health or, or in our businesses, then our reaction is to, you know, again, if we are oppositional, then we turn inwards and, and start pointing fingers at each other instead of uh, like all pulling together to solve the actual problem, which is, I mean, if you're in a business situation, you know, and you just have siloed teams start blaming each other instead of working together to solve like what is like, you know, can be viewed as an outside problem. You know, our main competitor is doing this. We have a situation where we're facing this headwind. You know, if you just internally start pointing fingers, you know, because that's your culture, then you have a problem of culture that is going to impact the business. Absolutely. And I mean, you say business, I want to say organization. Sure. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, different size organizations. Um, here, here's one for you. Uh, actually, this has just happened over the last two weeks. I've been working with a customer of, customer of mine, and they have a database issue. And this database has crashed a couple times and has taken down their production line of business. That's huge. That costs money. And the software vendor is pointing fingers at the virtualization layer vendor who is pointing fingers at the virtualized OS layer, who is pointing fingers at the storage layer. And none of these vendors want to take any accountability, any responsibility. And it was so bad that the company finally came to us and I'm actually doing this, you know, I'm building good goodwill. I'm doing this off the clock. I'm, I'm doing this, you know, separately from my regular business with this customer because I care about this customer. I want this customer to succeed. Um, and I had to get on this call and say, okay, here's what we know. 
and I laid out all the facts, right? We whittled through all of these problems and we actually talked and we were open and we were transparent. Well, this is how this does this. So this is affecting this. And we connected the dots and we finally figured out and, and right now we got to get the right person from the virtualized OS team to talk to us because it's so deep inside the virtualized OS where we've narrowed the problem to. We need a specialist for this. And unfortunately, it doesn't fall under what I do. Um, and it doesn't fall under what the database guys do. But we know we, we've made so much progress in just the last two weeks. They've had this problem for six months. And finally, when you bring this look, we need to be honest, transparent, we need to communicate, we can't point fingers, we have to break down these walls. This isn't about which vendor I work for or which, it, this is about helping our customer and, and, and helping them to succeed. Finally, we, we've started to, to make progress and, and we're, we're, we're so close, so close. Um, but once we get the, the specialist we need, I think we'll, we'll finally solve this issue. Um, but for six months, they've been banging on it. And only till I got on the calls and changed the culture of these calls and, and just said, look, it's about data. It's about facts. It's not about politics. It's not about whose fault. It's not about any of that. It's about just fixing it. Um, pr progress was made, right? Politics is communication. Huh? Yeah, something, or, or maybe just transcending all of it and just being like, look, let's fight about that stuff when there's not a crisis. Right now there's a crisis, let's solve it. I was listening for that um, description that you were talking about, the change of scope and change of uh, um, area of, of responsibility. And really, really interesting to hear Josh talk about the change and how that worked and, and what his expectations were and then what they ended up being, especially with uh, working with larger organizations. Like that presumption that the largest organizations are automatically going to be really good because they are large and kind of, I don't know, the way I took the reality of what he was experiencing, and maybe this is just, you know, my paraphrase is that, you know, large organizations were no more or less likely to be good. They were just really big and really good or really big and just as organizationally broken um, as any other organization could be, right? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. One of the things we didn't highlight in the beginning was Josh took a lot of time to educate other people and share knowledge, and he was passionate about the product that he was selling. He felt like it worked well to solve problems, and he wanted to take the time to educate others about it. He made a great quote about, if you share knowledge, it just gets bigger. If you share money, you're going to run out of money. I really like that. <laughs> yeah, that was great. And he also... You know, we don't dig into it a lot, but he also experienced a little bit of imposter syndrome in his move to a different segment. He just wasn't sure if 
could he actually do it? He wanted to, but he wasn't a hundred percent sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've all experienced that to a certain degree. Absolutely. Now, John, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out like, what are we building to in part three? I feel like something amazing's coming. Any idea what it is? I I'm, I'm sitting on, uh, I, I don't know what the phrase is. Uh, Tenter hooks? No, that's not it. Something like that. I, I'm just really anticipating. I want to, I want to hear the uh, conclusion to this interview. The first three-parter. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll have to wait till next week to find out. Just a reminder: we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. All right, farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at VJourneyman for Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore. Signing off. Adios. Adios.